0: Welcome to 3M's Inside Angle podcast. This is your host, Dr. Gordon Moore, and with me today is Dr. Eugene Christian. He's the Chief Medical Affairs Officer at Bon Secours Mercy Health System. Welcome, Dr. Christian. Thank you. Last time we spoke, you were in Virginia, and now you're in
1: Cincinnati. And tell me a little bit about that move. Interestingly enough, uh, Gordon, so last time we spoke, I had started uh, with uh, Bond's core Healthcare system as the CMO at St. Mary's Hospital in Richmond, having moved from Charlotte that year with Atrium, or I was with Atrium Health, which was then Carolina's Healthcare system. Started that in August of 2017. And then within six months, uh, we had an announcement that we were merging with Mercy Health of Ohio, which is another Catholic healthcare system. And that merger became completed September 1st of 2018. And as the reorganization took place uh, in November of that year, I was offered uh, the position as chief medical affairs officer for the, for the new healthcare system ministry, and that job happened to be in Cincinnati. So uh, after having made a move to Richmond and uh, enjoying working with the Bon Secours system, then made another move to Cincinnati to, to work within the, the larger newly merged ministry as the chief medical affairs officer, which has been very exciting and, and so far been a lot of fun.
0: And tell me this, uh, a sketch of the Bon Secours Mercy healthcare system. What is that?
1: Okay, so we are a combination of what was the legacy Bon Secours healthcare system, uh, which was Catholic healthcare system based mainly in uh, Virginia, Maryland, and South Carolina. We also have some, a few facilities in uh, New York and also in Tampa, Florida. So we really stretched along the um, Atlantic coast. Mercy Health of Ohio, uh, another Catholic healthcare system, primarily based in Ohio, actually the largest healthcare system in Ohio, also have a few facilities in Paducah, Kentucky. Bon Secours also had a uh, facility in Ashland, Kentucky. So it was a a natural, really natural merger of our two healthcare systems, very, very similar with our mission and values, uh, very like, in size between our two facilities, as far as uh, hospitals and uh, overall patients and employees uh, between the two systems. So in the combination of the two, we are now have employees of around 56,000, and we have 43 hospital facilities. And just recently, uh, we've acquired five hospitals in Ireland, which were legacy Bon Secours facilities in Ireland, and will become part of our healthcare system officially on the first of July. So, Bonsacor Mercy Health is now an international healthcare company.
0: Fantastic! And uh, maybe we can do a face-to-face uh, podcast recording on site in Ireland. That, that would be a lot my next of fun. Ball. Bring
1: your golf clubs. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'll do that. Well, the reason I wanted to speak with you today is that I heard you give a presentation a bit ago on some work that Mercy has been doing around managing opioids, and that's a hot topic and very interesting, and what you talked about was really compelling in terms of the approach, the use of data, figuring out how to get behavior change, and the results, and so I'd I'd like you to talk some about that. Why don't you start with how did this this whole thing
1: start? Why did your health system get into this? I think both of our health systems had started focusing on this as the opioid crisis really became a national conversation. I know Mercy uh, Health had been doing some work with the state of Ohio specifically on, on this over the past couple of years but really began some of their work back in 2015 as uh, the the board at Mercy and, and the sisters who were looking at the crisis as it existed and the number of overdose deaths that they were seeing in Ohio and Kentucky were, were really astounding and and really frightening to the ministry. So it became a priority with the healthcare system really coming from the board level that we needed to address this the best way that we could so from the mercy perspective i think it was driven there on the bonsecour side that conversation i think began a little later but in a similar manner with with our our healthcare system leaders and our board leaders and and our our sisters of Bon Secours, really looking at this as, a, as a, a national crisis that as a healthcare system, we really needed to, to do something about and to help the patients and the populations that we serve. So it really came as a priority from, from the highest levels of both organizations. And then, of course, with the merger, it remained a, a high priority with, with the merged system. So you
0: had this, uh, the boards saying that this
1: is important, we wanna get, get going. Where, where did they start? I think really where we we had to start with this is we had to look at, you know, where did the problem exist? And we know the problem exists in a couple of different areas. One is it's on the prescribing side. So it was the problem of looking at how providers treated pain. And and as a background to that, one of the, the emphasis that occurred back in the early late 90s and early 2000s, and I think many providers will remember this, that it came out and it was really a joint commission CMS prerogative that pain was the fifth vital sign. And that as healthcare providers, we really needed to address pain better and and really help our patients get through that. And as part of that, opioids became more and more frequently prescribed. So I think, I think the problems began somewhat back then. And I think the, the, the healthcare pharmacy companies were more than happy to to help you know contribute to that with the different types of opioids and we went from the short acting to the long acting opioids which really started to I think begin to contribute to the to the addiction problems that that started to sprout from that so initially it was it was hey we want to control pain but at at what expense and I think that's where the opioid crisis really started to get bad is in the honest approach to trying to control pain but not looking at it, I think more broadly as what were the alternatives, and I think now that we're we've seen what those alternatives for pain control are, we're doing a much better job with it so i think I think it started back with how do we as prescribers and providers do a better job in controlling that and I think the other piece of this is recognizing that the addiction piece of this is very real, and, and how do we help people when they enter our system who screen positive for heavy opioid use and, and have addiction issues that that we can help you know, shepherd in the right direction to get help. So in our emergency departments and, and in screenings through our primary care offices, we're trying to identify those patients who are struggling with this and try to provide help for them. So I think those are really the, the two places we're trying to work on how we do a better job with with helping our patients avoid the, the opioids, at first and foremost. And then if they needed them and had trouble with them, how do we help them move off of them, taper away from them? Or if they are chronic pain patients or cancer patients who needed it, how do we appropriately prescribe it and keep them safe with it?
0: I remember as you were presenting this earlier, you talked about the example of total joints and managing that with opioids and the complications that flowed from that use and how that
1: shifted. Absolutely. So uh, I think think Orthopedic joint replacements is a great example of, of trying to, to do a better job with overall pain management. So we know that you know, when we were giving opioids to patients early on, it was harder for them to mobilize. It took longer for them to, to get into physical therapy. Their, their lengths to stay were three or four days. And over time, what we've discovered is that actually eliminating opioids using local anesthetic and long-acting local anesthetic um, pain blocks and joint blocks for um, control of pain and using multimodal analgesia, such as really using Tylenol judiciously and, and using Celebrex and, and some of the other products that were out there. When we d- used these in combinations, they worked actually better than the opioids, particularly with the elderly patients. We didn't have the, uh, the CNS effects from it. They didn't, they didn't have the balance issues. We actually saw them rehabilitate faster and this really helped push the metric to getting joint replacement really into it as an outpatient procedure. And so I think that was a really, that's a great example of how, you know, looking at pain differently and how we control it really helped our patients, particularly in that, uh, that scenario with joint replacement.
0: And the pain management was, was equally effective
1: with the non-narcotic approach? Oh, yes. Matter of fact, if you we t- we talk to patients now, and if, and if you look at their their pain scores, and if you look at objective VAS scores and so forth, the patients who are getting multimodal you now oftentimes report lower pain scores than the patients who are getting opioids. It's remarkable.
0: Wow! And of course, therefore, by not using the opioids, as you mentioned before, they're less likely to be lying in bed, uh, kind of out of it on. Opioids and also when they do get up more stable, so you know that's a that's a clear double win for them, as you're mentioning. So one of the things that's implicit in what you just what you've been saying so far is the ability to track metrics. What kinds of things are you guys tracking, uh, and what's important to you in terms of observing data flow over time?
1: Well, uh, when we looked at the best way to track improvement here is, is looking at. Total opioid burden, how much opioid was being prescribed across the system, and then looking at what best practices would be for morphine daily dose equivalence. And w- one of the things that also helped drive this is the state of Ohio, the state of Virginia, some of the states in the last two years have actually, you know, legislated a limit on daily morphine equivalence. So you can take all the opioids that are out there. And you can you can calculate through an algorithm a morphine equivalent dosage. So by doing that, we're able to measure equally across all opioid prescribing, morphine equivalents. So that we we can speak the same language and be able to measure them all the same you know same equally. So, for instance, thirty daily morphine equivalents is a limit that the state of Ohio set for using the use of acute pain management for short acting um, opioids. So we chose that as one of our metrics as a target for saying that's the limit that we would set for the daily prescription dose that we would send. The states also limited the number of days you could have on a prescription. Some were three, some were five to seven. Every state was a little different. So we, we had to work a little bit on how we helped our, our providers prescribe this in our um, electronic health record, and it had to be state-specific to meet those requirements. But that plus being able to calculate an overall opioid burden in the system how many prescriptions were we writing you know how big were those prescriptions and what types of dosages were attached to them by looking at both those metrics we we're able to track the the results of the things we were putting in place like how we used our electronic health record to help our prescribers actually prescribe the proper dosages And make it easy for them to do it without the the prescribers having to actually calculate what those were. So that really helped us be able to track our progress, just being able to do that across the system and make it sort of equal as far as how we measured everything.
0: That's it. It, You know, reducing work burden is something that's really interesting to me, because I see that as one of the things that really good technology can do. I just don't see a lot of really good technology. I hear mostly from our colleagues that they're frustrated. It's not making life easier for me, but it sounds like you were using that make it easy to do the right thing
1: is when you were implementing policies and procedures around this. Absolutely. So when we were thinking about, you know, what these limits were on the prescribing, how do we help our physicians and providers prescribed properly and know what the doses were that they were going to be doling out in a number of days, what we built into our electronic health record was an opioid pain prescription module. So instead of having ad hoc ability to just order opioids by clicking on a specific uh, drug, we actually put all of the opioids into a specific pain set. So if you wanted to prescribe an opioid, you had to open that pain set. It was it was separate from any of the other non-opioid pain management solutions that we had. And built into that, and it, it took some extensive work to do it but, it, but it really worked out beautifully. All the different narcotic pain medications were listed. And if you chose the proper narcotic at the proper dose, if you clicked on that, It gave you the exact dose, the number of days, and your prescription then printed out, and you didn't have to go to another step. And if you wanted to, you could go beyond that. If you wanted to order more you want to order more days, you could do that, but then what it would take you to is another screen that would warn you, hey, you are outside the parameters that have been set for this. Do you really want to do this? If you really want to do this, then you have to take another step. So essentially what we did was we made it really easy for the providers to do the right thing and make it really hard for them to do the wrong thing. We initially had concerns from the providers that this might slow them down and it would interfere with their workflow, but the way we constructed it and with the education we put out, it was quickly adopted and the providers actually loved it and found that, wow, I can stay, I can stay compliant. If I have to go outside that, I can, and here's how I have to do it. And, and there are times when they just had to do it for, for a particular patient, which is fine. But making it easy to do the right thing and hard to do the the wrong thing, and I not necessarily use the word wrong, but hard to work outside what we felt were the proper parameters, really seemed to to be um, workable for our physicians, and and they were they were happy to embrace that.
0: And you, therefore, I'm guessing, did not
1: experience, say, you know, torches and pitchforks at your door. Surprisingly, we did not. Uh, I think you know the communication about, about this. Was, was pretty widespread, and I think our providers, for the most part, understood what we were trying to do and what we were trying to do to help their patients, really, and, and keep everybody within, within safe ranges. We also, for patients who had chronic pain uh, and were in pain clinics, we, it was set up, and a lot, again, a lot of this was driven by the states. If you're a chronic pain patient, you now have a contract with only one provider. You could only order from one pharmacy, so we also set that up for the chronic pain patients who are in pain management to make that easy for our providers to to do. And along with that, knowing that these are higher doses and and more dangerous doses, um, along with that, allowed for naloxone prescriptions to be added in there so the patients could take that with them as a safety net in case, for whatever reason, uh, they might run into trouble, their family members are taught how to use it. And we're able to, in many cases, we have some examples of how that rescued some patients from an overdose problem.
0: Was it complicated um, coming up with these standards, or was it pretty much you take what the
1: state legislated and said, we're just going to do that? We we started that. That was our base. We just, here's what the state says we're going to do. We're going to comply with that. But when you looked at best practice, as far as morphine equivalence and, and treatment for acute pain with short-acting opioids for the the opioid naive patient, these really were best practices from a clinical standard. So no one really had a hard time complying with the state regulations on this because it really did line up with what was felt to be best practice and safe practice for opioid prescribing.
0: And did you, you, I'm presuming you had a typical structure where you get a bunch of medical staff together, multidisciplinary teams, that kind of thing?
1: Yes, we actually had to create an opioid task force and this task force was multidisciplinary, so we had surgical specialists, medical specialists, pharmacy, supply chain, uh, nursing. Everyone, you know, in those particular areas were part of this system task force that met and looked at you know how to design this, and then our clinical informatics teams. Once the decision was made how we wanted to construct it, then the clinical informatics teams then went into Epic, and our, and our builders then built these these parameters into our prescribing uh, algorithms. So it, it was really a, a multidisciplinary approach to this. We wanted to make sure that every stakeholder that would have anything to do with, with you know, the opioid world where it was involved. and of course, very heavy on, on ED involvement because ED docs are the first people that they're going to contact many of these patients when they come in uh, that, that might need opioids. We also, the ED had a subgroup, they had a sub-task force to look at um, how can we make our, our emergency departments as opioid-free as possible? So, you know, the, the concept of the opioid-free emergency department. And for the most part, in many of our markets, we were able to drive that metric fairly well, and that was to decrease the amount of opioid prescribing by ED docs for patients who were coming in for emergency uh, care that might you know, need something to control pain, uh, and they would, of course, would be discharged, they were not necessarily admitted to the hospital for their problem, but maybe had a, a simple fracture, it was taken care of, splinted, and, and trying to use alternative methods for pain while we were giving patients close follow-up and get them into their specialists as quickly as possible so the patients weren't out waiting any great length of time to get seen for their definitive care. So access we worked on and then trying to use alternative prescribing practices for using non-opioids. Uh, was a metric that the EDs collectively decided they wanted to measure amongst themselves and and hold themselves to. And there was no significant number that they were trying to reach. It was to just lower it as far down to to zero actually as possible. So zero was the goal, knowing that probably not doable in every in every situation, but driving it out of the ED was was a big part of the work that we did.
0: When you were describing this earlier, I remember you showed a slide showing a really uh, dramatic drop in ED visits, particularly around that cohort of people who who might have been seeking drugs, maybe not for, uh, you know, because of abuse risk, and that that drop in ED visits uh, could be alarming to administrators. Is that something that came up with you guys?
1: Well, it did, and so one of the things that we found in some of our, our ED volume trackings where we saw some of the, the volumes in the emergency departments did drop, and um, it was once we instituted what we called the, the opioid-free emergency department, word gets out in the community fairly quickly. And once people found that, you know, hey, I, I can't go to that hospital's emergency department and, and get, you know, a narcotic because they're not going to give it to me, um, those patients didn't come. And we did see some drop-off in volume. But it was the kind of volume that honestly doesn't need to be in an emergency department. We, we want people to come to the emergency department that need care and would, and would see everybody that comes in. And... You know, want to get, and want to care for their acute problem, but for those people that didn't have an acute problem and were just you know really drug seeking, we saw a drop off on that, and then it was it's amazing how many there are because we saw some overall volume shifts that occurred because of that. And initially, there's always the alarm from the administration side: "Oh my gosh, our volume in the ED is dropping." Well, that's because some of that volume didn't really need to be in the ED to begin with, and and we really have to make sure that the, we're giving the right care at the right time at the right place. And, and so I think that, that that's all okay. And when we looked at it from the standpoint of we're, we're providing the right care for our patients and we're doing the right thing for the population. And what happens over time is, as your emergency department gets a little less congested from those people who are waiting to get that, wait times actually got better and people got seen in a more timely manner. And over time, some of the EDs bounced back because uh, the word got out so, hey, you don't have to wait as long to go to that ED, let's go there. Because, as you know, in many communities, ED wait times are posted on the billboards now. So it did make a difference.
0: I can imagine that a person with an opioid use disorder doesn't need to come to an emergency department and get more opioids. They, they would probably more likely benefit from substance abuse treatment. That's a good thing. That's, uh, it, it's tough, though, sometimes when I think about um, pushback around revenue when that can be pretty lean in hospitals. And it sounds like uh, you guys have weathered that pretty well. We think so. So I hear then you have an evidence base, you have uh making it easy to do the right thing, getting everybody on board, using uh a multidisciplinary team approach, also informing leadership, hey, we're, you know, we're likely to see some changes in data that might be a little bit concerning, but here's why it's important and because that's connected to the mission that works, that works pretty well. Um I, I remember you you also mentioned that there was a difference when you looked at EDs across uh, state lines in Kentucky versus Ohio. Did I recall that correctly?
1: Yes. I, well, I think what we saw was that Kentucky versus Ohio, for instance, you know, we've got a big market in Cincinnati and the Ohio River is right there and you, know, you can walk across the bridge and you're in Kentucky. Kentucky, for instance, did not have the same um, parameters that their state had put forth. As far as uh, you know amounts of of opioid you could dispense and and uh, a limit on the days, for instance, that you could do it, so because they had not embraced that part, it took longer to get our facilities in Kentucky to see some improvement because there wasn't that push at the state level to you know, that mandated doing that, so it took a little longer to really socialize the work we were doing across the system there to start to see results but once we started instituting it and providers began to see the benefit in it, despite the fact that they weren't necessarily required to do it, we began to see some improvement. I think a big part of it was just between Ohio and Kentucky we saw that, just because they were different on what, what they were requiring.
0: You know, I'm, I'm often thinking about the impact of policy on care delivery, and most of the time when I think about that and talk with folks about the, those impacts, it tends to be kind of negative. This seems to be one of those cases where the policy in Ohio around appropriate use seems to be reasonably appropriate, and translate into better care delivery. So that that sounds like a win. Absolutely. Well, that's a pretty good lesson. I, I want to thank you for your time today, and ask you if there are any last thoughts or wrap ups you have for folks who are listening.
1: Um, I would say that that really for us, and, and I think for any healthcare system that's trying to institute change, I think having the support from the top down with something like this really was helpful. Is that everyone knew what the right thing was. It was supported from the board level on down and and the board made sure that the resources were available to get the work done. So there was plenty of resources allocated to get the builds done in our EHR. There were plenty of resources allocated to try to work on, you know, and we didn't really even talk very much about the, the access to care and recovery piece. So, you know, we also, Um, had an expert screening process where it was screening and looking at, you know, who screened positive and who we could get into recovery and treatment. And in a lot of our areas, we were able to get local community help to partner with us, particularly in some of the treatment centers, to quickly get people into treatment once once we saw them and were able to screen for them. And, And we were actually able to to get Suboxone treatment you know, for two or three days while we're waiting for people to get into treatment and get access to that treatment. So th- there's that whole other piece of it that you know we started in some of our markets, and depending on what the resources were in the markets, we're able to, to expand more in some places than others. But we continue to do that work. We continue to partner with our communities on helping our addicted patients with that treatment piece of this to help them get off of it and away from it. Because even though we may not prescribe it, People can still go buy it on the street, you know. And if they can't get that, they'll, they'll, they'll try to get something different. But if we can help them with their overall problem and get them into treatment, you know, we can save some lives. And that that's really, you know, what we were driving towards is the addiction problem is terrible and and the, the death from it is terrible. And if we can save some lives with the work we're doing, then, then we've done what we've come to do to, to take care of our patient population.
0: Dr. Eugene Christian, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Gordon. For Inside Angle, this is Gordon Moore. You can find more podcast episodes at www.3mhisinsideangle.com.